Hello Chinyamaji family, as we kickstart this year, a new decade, we bring you another oldie but goodie episode. This is a guaranteed treat. One of Nairobi's finest, Kane Wanjao, CTO of Twigger Foods, which is one of Nairobi's thriving startups, was on Chinyamaji podcast to share his knowledge on the Nairobi startup ecosystem. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody, this is the Chinyamaji podcast with Impact Africa Network. My name is Mark Karaki. And today I am super excited to have uh, another amazing guest in our series. And uh, Kane Manjao is CTO at Twigger Foods and just an amazing ecosystem personality. Somebody who I uh, consider a friend, somebody who I uh, have known for probably over a year now and yeah. some, some change. But yeah, Kane's background is fascinating. Um, he's an entrepreneur, technologist, and basically all-around ecosystem good guy, I would say, right? Um, everybody who knows Kane uh, has good things to say, and it's not just because he's a good guy, but he's also very accomplished in, in terms of uh, his career, his profession, and uh, what he does. He's one of the guys, I would say, is an A player um, in our ecosystem. And so just to kind of reiterate a little bit of your background, you've doubled in robotics, you lived in Japan, Australia, you ran a consulting firm, um, and also launched a display advertising uh, technology that uh, um, was actually put out into the market, which is very impressive. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, we're excited to have you because you have a lot to share for, with the ecosystem. So mm-hmm. why don't we just start with you know, introducing yourself and uh, telling the world who you are. Yeah, so thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, equally as excited to, to be here to share my thoughts, views uh, on the general tech scene and the ecosystem. So yeah, definitely I've been, I've been looking forward to this for, for a while. So yeah, thanks, thanks to you and the team for, for bringing me on. Uh, yeah, but by, by way of background, uh, I have very many varied interests. Um, I, I mean, born and raised in Nairobi, grew up here, did primary and high school here. And then as I was finishing high school, I, I kind of started thinking, okay, what do I want to do career-wise? Because at that point, I hadn't really settled on something so in high school which high school did you go to so my primary and high school i spent 12 years at st mary's so i did 12 years in the same school so you're one of the saints (laughs) (laughs) yes but in many ways i I liked the consistency it gave me um, in the sense that i spent 12 years in one place got to build a solid solid foundation there and so even as i think of the next thing i was I, i only had this thing think long term don't think, okay, what I'm going to do for two years, three years, four years. I'm like, okay, how do I look at this for the next five, ten years? Because wow. I'd spent 12 years at the same place mm-hmm. and had kind of evolved and grown in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. So my default setting has always been think, think long term. So do you think having been at one school mm-hmm. in one environment, yeah. put that framework in your mind? Or is there something else that contributed to that way of thinking? Because that's an unusual yeah. way of thinking for a young person. Yeah, I think... I think I'd say largely the fact that I, I mean, you're right, the fact that I'd stayed there for that long kind of made me think, okay, I've been here for so long, uh, I feel things have gone as I had planned, Mm -hmm. I've seen myself grow, evolve as a person, so as I'm thinking of it, it's thinking around how do I set myself for my next phase of life? Not think of it in terms of one, two, three years, which which is not which is not a bad thing. It's just a different way of thinking. Right. Uh, I just felt that structure worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was, I was I was thinking at that time. Okay, what do I wanna do with my career? How do I wanna uh, how do I wanna take my next step in next step in life? So the thing that really interested me was uh, computers uh, and more so hardware. Mm. Um, I mean, I think at that time a lot of people focused on software and I think that's the time I think I, I'd say the IT scene was really, really taking off. Now it's, it's nothing compared to the ecosystem or the startup scene we have nowadays, but people are starting to understand the power and the usefulness of, of technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was in very simple ways. For example, for the longest, um, my report card at the end of term, teacher used to go and write it right. out by hand. And you take it home. Comments, take it home. <laughs> Burning all in your pocket <laughs> or your, your backpack. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was how things were. Then at some point, they switched to um, an automated system. Oh, wow. So okay. you do exams, your teachers would feed it in. Mm. And then that's printed out. So all that would be remaining is for the teachers to write mm. the comments mm. against your grid. Mm. But the whole thing was automated. So, I mean, people saw that 
uh, the teachers like it saved them a lot of time because mm -hmm. a lot of it was essentially clerical work. So right. the fact that the technology could do that for them, yeah. people started to say, okay, this, this thing looks like it would be good. And it was starting to touch various sectors of the economy. Mm -hmm. So education was one. Um, of course, at the time, I think uh, Safaricom, and I think then it was called um, Cancel. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the two big players, so people started to understand, okay, maybe mobile technology will be a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, we hadn't really realized the impact it would have, mm -hmm. but people said, I think the seeds had been planted in people's minds, like technology is going to be a big thing. Right. So, they were seeing it actually manifest. Yeah, they were seeing it manifest in various mind. ways. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, I think, I think technology is where I want to be, but let me try focus on, on hardware. Okay. So when I did my research, I kind of figured out um, at that time, Japan is where a lot of the cool things to do with hardware and robotics were, were kind of happening. At the time. So right Japan, now it's very different, obviously. China seems to be leading, or do you have a view? Right, I mean, right now, it's, I think, given the proliferation of even cheap hardware devices, so like Raspberry Pis, IoT sensors and everything, it's manifesting itself anywhere. So the good thing is it's very democratized in a sense. And I think the person with the best idea has very cheap access to hardware mm -hmm. and the ability to make something useful out of it. Now, granted they're still made in China, mm -hmm. but the ability to think through, design, iterate and build something has really, really changed over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that, is that because of software tools or what's the reason for that? I, I think three things. One, the cost of hardware has come really, really uh, down. Um, I mean, those days, even a, even a laptop, you would think of spending 300000 which is $3,000. Wow, yeah. um, mm -hmm. um, now you can get a very decent, okay laptop for $700 or so. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think when, I, when I think through the changes in terms of cost of hardware, that's really made access much, much easier. Mm -hmm. The second one, of course, is software and access to information. Right. Uh, the improvement in connectivity, having information easily available. Someone can figure this out by themselves. They can quickly figure out the prototype thing. Exactly. Out. Yeah. I mean, those days even to, to learn, I remember in high school, for me to like really learn computers properly, mm. yes, I would have the laptop and do the theory, but then I would have to go get a book from the library mm. and read through what software does. Wow. <laughs> I mean, Google was just starting up. Uh, right. it, was a, it was a good resource then. Uh, but of course, they were still in the process of indexing the, the internet, so you didn't have all the information, or certainly not the amount of information you have yeah, now. Today, yeah. uh, the likes of Stack Overflow, where people go to for resources, for right, example, right. didn't GitHub, exist. Things like that. Blogs was just a concept at that right. point in time. Right. So all the tools that people have available to them now were not really there at that time. So yeah. people would have to go and like to the library and look for the book. So, so information was just non-existent in a sense, or exactly. very difficult to come by in a useful format that you I wouldn't say difficult, I'd say you really have to be resourceful to okay. get the right information. Right. Um, the good thing, Amazon was established then, of course, we, we still had the challenge with credit cards here. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think many people had them then, so to thinking, okay, how do I get uh, the material I need here? But nowadays, of course, uh, the whole game has changed. There's mm -hmm. so much information there. And mm -hmm. then the third thing which I think has really helped is optimization of global supply chain so mm -hmm. i can easily order something online uh, it can come from as far as china the mm -hmm. hardware mm -hmm. is in plentiful and at a reasonable cost mm -hmm. and ship them here and have them in a, in a few days mm -hmm. uh, i mean now we have uh, the likes of um, aerocast um, so which is a popular site for hardware enthusiasts mm -hmm. what's it called again uh, narrowcast narrowcast yeah. okay so mm -hmm. can go there mm -hmm. buy any kind of chip or hardware you need, and mm. then start start playing around with, mm. uh, with with devices and sensors. So, I think the landscape had changed. But for context, at that time, you really had to go where the action was. You mm. had to go see it, understand it. Um, YouTube only came in two thousand and five, so yeah. you yeah. didn't have that much of a resource. Even if you wanted to go and try watch it online, that information was not that easily available. Mm. So, for that reason, I decided to go to Japan just to kind of try and understand the hardware robotics space. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for one year mm -hmm. and then continued my studies um, in Australia for four years. So in Australia I actually combined hardware and software. And the reason I did that was because I knew eventually I want to get into the hardware space. And then I was like, 
look, if, if I get to the end of my studies and let's say I decide to come back to Kenya, which I did, mm. and the market is not ready for that, mm. I just need to be flexible enough to understand what opportunities are there at mm. that point in time. So mm. I kind of split it and said, okay, my course will be one that focuses 50% on hardware and then focuses 50% on, on software. Mm. So my, combined, my degree was a combination of Wow. Of those two That's things. an unusual degree. What, 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 why? How was um, that even possible? So luckily, the university I went to um, let you one had a, one, one of the things I chose was that I have a very wide range of courses. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, you could mix and match. So depending on the credits you took, they'll tell you this credit is eligible for these eight mm -hmm. degrees. Mm -hmm. So I'll take a course that's eligible for electrical, uh, mechanical, uh, electromechanical, uh, general engineering. Then you take another course that would apply for mechanical and civil engineering. So they're very flexible in how they thought about what units would constitute what made your degree. Because yeah. we're looking at it in terms of credit points. Yeah. So they gave you that flexibility from early on. So as soon as you got to your third year, uh, your last two years were essentially, are you saying this is where I really want to focus on? This is my area of speciality. Um, most universities tend to be Yes, more rigid. Yeah, straight jacket. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and you know, even if you look so at the way the way the world is setting itself up right mm. now along the education space, yeah. right? I mean, you were kind of describing what you're mm. describing right now mm. is a scenario where, you know, instructional courses mm. are, in a sense, they were gearing them to, they were allowing that flexibility yeah. with a view to allowing you to be able to, in a sense, de graduate but define mm. what skill sets you wanted to actually. Uh, attain so that when you, you became market ready in a yeah. sense. It was almost a market readiness kind of uh, flexibility. It allows for some to say, okay, I want to do this because I see I can do this in the world, right? It applies directly to Yeah, and I, and I think for me the seeds were planted when I, was, when I was actually in high school. So we got quite a bit of flexibility around what we could do because mm -hmm. your uh, at least exam system then, I'm not sure it is now, you'd have to do eight subjects. No, I think five core ones. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. remember there was math, English, Swahili, and two sciences. Mm -hmm. Those are compulsory. Beyond that, uh, to the school to decide. Yeah. Now some schools are very strict and said these are the resources we have, so these are the less, these are the subjects you have to study. Mm -hmm. I was a bit more flexible. So outside the five mandatory ones, you could either choose another science uh, or choose religious studies. Um, I chose computer studies. Uh, I chose commerce. Um, I also chose history, so I think from a very young age, I, I, I had that mindset saying if I can choose and see what makes sense for me, it did help set me up for what I want to do next in my, in my career. So, so to, to some extent, I was, I was also thinking, okay, when I finish, do I want to say I'm very specialized in one thing, or do I want to have a bit more flexibility, mm. and, and I went for the latter. So. So when I, when I came back, actually my, my thinking then was actually proven to be the case because those, I think that time um, when I came back, which was the end of 2010, the, the, the startup scene was just kind of starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. um, so prior to the iHubs uh, and the working spaces, the co-working spaces that we have today, uh, people are doing a lot of the discussions on... Um, on email, email threads wow. and, and group chats, mm -hmm. um, which was good because mm -hmm. it kind of got people talking. This mm -hmm. is what they, we need to do in the ecosystem. People started kind of knowing who who else is in the is in networking, the space. Yeah, yeah networking. Mm -hmm. So this interestingly they started on uh, email threads. Mm -hmm. uh, then co-working spaces came. A lot of these conversations have now moved to uh, meetups or WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of the conversations. This happen. is interesting. I mean, so, let's track a little bit of the yeah. history of how the ecosystem has evolved yeah. and the effect it has had. Because yeah. you know, you you guys were first of the first batch, I would say, mm. of emerging technologists or mm. innovators or mm. entrepreneurs. Mm. And so you're saying it started online through threads, email threads, yeah. and chat rooms. Yeah. And then the spaces came about the iHubs and the Nylabs. Yes. Right. And mm. and then. And then obviously something has obviously maybe changed in a sense. Can you track for us maybe what have been the changes between the early days and right now in terms of how people organize and the impacts of those? So, so I think the, the way it's evolved in my view was it's just a consequence of how people have come to relate to the, to the ecosystem. Um, 
pre pre twenty ten pre twenty eleven, I think a lot of people would spend time in cyber cafes. Um, a lot of the, I mean, even if you have some of the people who founded companies here, they started by working out of uh, cyber cafes. And you know, the thing is, it was a very it's very interesting because I came to realize that cyber cafes had very, had a very interesting business model. Mm. They'll charge you by the minute. Wow. But mm. the the main cost was the amount of data bandwidth, yeah. Uh, that someone used. Right. Yeah. Right. So imagine you want to send an email. A very simple task. Because yeah. that's how that's I mean this was pre <laughs> this was the beginning of social media, so people right. are generally on emails that day right. and these email threads and chat rooms. I mean spend twenty minutes writing an email. Yeah. But sending it will only cost you a few megabytes at most. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll be charged for the time. Uh, aspect not, of not it, the yeah. But the, the reality is, it was very affordable. Mm. People found it as a good way to go and kind of get plugged in into the internet, understand what's happening. Um, so it got to a point where I think people, people kind of then said, okay, what, what next? So um, the crew around um, that space was like, okay, let's let's think of a co-working space. Um, so I have I have was founded as a co-working space, and I think it unlocked another second level of access. Mm. Um, so people are like, okay, we actually don't have to go to cyber cafes, let's, let's go and find like-minded people. Because mm. another thing about a cyber cafe is, I'm going there, yes, but people are there for different things. Right. One is right. really there there's no for, community feel. There's no community feel around it, exactly. Mm. So mm. people are like, okay, let's, let's go to iHub as it was then. Mm. Um, they had a free tire. So people, as long a as free one, a free tire. So they had okay, a free plan. So, so there was a, it was a community space. It was a community space. Then you could pay for a dedicated space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very, very interesting and cool model. Mm-hmm. At least you, you, you had the sense you're going there and you'll probably find like like Monday right, people. Right. Yeah. Right. One thing that goes unsaid, I think, um, it should be emphasized more is a lot of the um, companies you see today were. Discussions or even the people meeting happened at IHAP. Right. Um, a lot of right. companies are founded by people meeting there. So it was a primordial and, soup of what we see today. Exactly, and so and as much as it has evolved and people have varied opinions about it, I, I personally saw a lot of those companies, um, friendships, even right. marriages. <laughs> <laughs> people people met at IHAP, and uh, so 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 I, I think it played a I think it played a very very important. It's, Yes, party catalyzing what we have today. This is an important point because Mm -hmm. if you look at Mm -hmm. and how much of the free tier Mm -hmm. facilitated that or made that possible, I think I would say that's really a lot of people came for the free tier uh, service. If it was paid, I don't think it would have had what you had today. Um, Now, of course. You have to build a sustainable business. That's true. But I think I think when it was being founded, the team behind it was like, okay, let's 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 bring us let's let's create a space where people can come and actually um, get to know each other. Uh, let's understand what are the issues in the ecosystem. Um, I think they 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 they, they had this thing where they're like, okay, with with time, we feel we can have metrics or something useful to say about the, the ecosystem. Right. Um, and they used to have a lot of events. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyone who wanted to meet anyone with a startup idea would come to IHAP. Mm. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I think those days it was a tourist stop of sorts. So <laughs> <laughs> if you don't understand the IHAP, the startup scene, you'll be told, okay, go, go to go, go to, to IHAP. IHAP. Yeah. So, so this was, yeah, 2011, 2012, I think that's when really, it really, really, um, I mean, served its primary, primary purpose. Yeah. Uh, I think the good thing also is the companies that felt they were big enough or had gotten some traction, left it to other people to come. So it wasn't just a matter of coming and staying, the same there, yeah, yeah, staying yeah. there forever. So it was so a pass-through situation. So at the time, even the, the, the people who went there changed. So I remember going there after not being there for a very long time and I could hardly recognize any faces. But for me, it was validation yeah, in good. the sense that, yeah. okay, I've come here, I was able to make connections, uh, meet you people on. with yeah. mutual interests. Yeah. Uh, I moved on. Then other people came and made use of the space. So let's let's so, switch back to kind of like now yeah. how you made use of the space because this is a very interesting story. Yeah, you 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 started to kind of hone your entrepreneurial chops there. What were some yeah. of the first projects you worked on? What how what was that about? Yeah, so so coming after coming back, I I had a few options, um, and I decided to take the plunge and be an entrepreneur. 
Uh, at the same time, I enrolled for my master's mm -hmm. at Strathmore University. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always came knowing I want to take a crack at it. One, one thing that's always, I, I think, understated uh, in my view is you want to you wanna do these things when you're young. Mm -hmm. and you don't have too many commitments or obligations because mm -hmm. if you fail you can always recover recover mm -hmm. or you, you the only other way of doing this is you have something very successful you have a plan b or a fallback plan so you go back into the entrepreneurial space i mean when you're at a point where maybe you're just settling down or you have a young family it's very very difficult mm -hmm. to even think about taking mm -hmm. taking a risk so i was like if i'm gonna do it let me do it now so I decided to get into, uh, I decided to do two things. So one was start, um, co-found a company that does digital um, transit advertising, and then also do an IT consultancy. It wasn't more to hedge my best, just that I want to try two things and see, and see how both go. Mm -hmm. So I think from, from that perspective, I, I managed to make the right connections there. I met people who, actually I met my co-founder for at Flashcast um, at IHAP. So I managed to make good connections, uh, I got good networks, I got good leads. Um, and the good thing those days is if, if someone came and said, look, I need someone who does ABCD, they would easily find someone else they know from my hub. Because it was all validating, okay, I know this person, they can do their work, uh, I can vouch for them. Which, was, which is, even today, is very hard. Like, unless you know someone personally, you not recommend uh, someone to someone you don't know. Right. But I have kind of make people know each other more, understand what their capabilities are, what their skill set is. So it was very easy for someone to refer someone else. So, so I think beyond just the personal connection, it was, able to, um, it was able to spur a lot more connections than it would otherwise been, been possible. So for me personally, it's where I started my entrepreneur, entrepreneurship journey. Um, I was able to kind of also understand how do other people think about business um, from that space. I remember we had a lot of people who had already started companies and would come and share their knowledge. I remember talking to Segeni quite a lot. Segeni was the founder of Lama Mike's mm -hmm. and used to come there quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the I'm to just moving closer because sure. the mic is a bit far. I want to make sure these people catch all <laughs> no, it's, yeah, the the team behind you, Shahidi, was also working out of there, so they used to have a lot of insights and thoughts to share. Mm -hmm. So, so there's, there's a lot of uh, positive, good things going on, um, and especially the events. They bring people who they felt would bring value or add value to the ecosystem. So they brought fireside chats as a concept. So people who made it or people who uh, are prominent, mm -hmm. um, they would come and share. Local, their, local yeah, all of these, all these are local. Although they, I remember one where they brought um, Brian Chesky. Mm. Uh, the co-founder of Airbnb. Mm. Uh, he came in 2014, I believe. Sorry, 2016. And um, no, sorry, I got the dates wrong. I think it was 20. That must have been 2016, if I'm not wrong. But but anyway, um, so wherever they could, they found people. Yeah, they found they found people. Uh, what so, do you think? This, this is an important point. Where yeah. do you think the ecosystem is right now to replace what they were doing, or has that scaled into? Is somebody else kind of doing that right now? Because obviously the effect was very powerful because you guys are alumni of that whole experience. Yeah, so I think, I think since then it's, it's evolved um, in the sense that we do... So, so those days I know we had IHAP and the other big one then was Nylab. Although Nylab was more an incubator. So they'll bring you in, um, work with you, get your business sustainable mm -hmm. and then kind of let you find your feet. Mm -hmm. Um, we also had ILAP working out of Strathmore, mm. uh, a similar concept mm. where they incubate. So I don't think there's any company or organization that's taken the IHUB model. Um, now it could be for various reasons. I think a lot of them are looking at their sustainability. Mm -hmm. So they need to be able to kind of avail desks or space at a fee right. to be able to cover their costs. Right. So, so that's kind of evolved. Um, and I think a lot of the conversation now has moved to social media platforms. Um, we still, so in terms of one-off events and um, kind of what we used to have then around fireside chats and the like, I know we now have the likes of Meta doing regular regular talks. Um, I have still does talks, but but the good thing is I think a lot of the a lot of access or a lot of the um, people who are at IHUB or a lot of the companies that are founded there are at, are right now on much more solid footing. 
and even in a position to sponsor uh, events, for example. So I think that access to information or access to community is still there. It's evolved, yes. You don't have a place where you can go and work. I don't think there's any mm. that I know mm. of. Because mm. of the sustainability uh, concerns. the sustainability concerns. Mm. But the good thing is those who, um, those who benefited from that concept five, six years ago, I'm trying to think of ways they can give back. So let's talk about this, because yeah. this is important. Yeah. Uh, because it's all the ecosystem mm. evolves, mm. but you still got to be doing the things that catalyze early growth, because there's mm. people who are coming back, mm. like you, who mm. are coming out of KU, coming out of all these universities mm. and local institutions. Mm. Where is their IAM today? And it, it doesn't seem there's a direct answer there, right? I mean, mm. at least I haven't been able to kind of find a place where people can go congregate without having to pay a fee. Mm-hmm. Which to me, in my mind, leaves a gap, mm-hmm. right? Because you still need to keep that early stage catalyzation. Mm-hmm. You're saying that folks who build companies can are thinking about ways to kind of create similar conditions. I think, I mean, it's the many ways of looking at it. But my my personal view is you you want you want to build uh, a system or or a set of um, enablers that would have what I would call entrepreneurs not just with an idea to come and thrive. Because right. I think one, one good thing that day is like, there was quite, the, the good thing about that is there's some kind of filter in the sense that you came there knowing you're coming to meet like-minded people. Mm. Now, of course, a lot of more people in the IT space, the number of students going through university studying um, anything in the IT field is much, much more. And so you want to kind of think, okay, through beyond just coming and uh, using a space. Are you coming with something you want to try out at least? So there's a filtration process that has to happen, a selection. Which, which, which I think is good in some ways. Of course, there's a cost, there's an aspect of... How do you do that actually? How do you do that in a sustainable way? But then you don't want people just to come and use the space for the sake of using right, it. Right. Um, I think that also takes us in the wrong, in direction. The wrong direction. Yeah. So the fact that you still have incubators of some sort, I think is good. Um, I think where I think access to knowledge, information, and network should still be there. That may or may not be done exclusively through events or networking opportunities. But I think those. I think the way the way to think of it maybe is those who are, I guess, determined and inquisitive enough should be able to know where these access, events are right. happening, access these opportunities, right. uh, look to get to an incubator. Because you don't want someone to come and do it just for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you want someone who's coming and looking at this and saying, okay, can I sustain myself for the next, can I give it a go for the next six months? But you know, if you yeah. think about, you know, uh, the average person when they're, when they're young, mm-hmm. there are so many things that you kind of maybe assume or you don't even think you can do, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you just kind of are looking at the world and hoping something, a signal pops up, right? Mm-hmm. And if you go somewhere and you have to pay to attend things, I mean, you don't have that much uh, liquidity at that point in time. So my, my sense is true. You, you would need to actually have some selection as to find the right people who are motivated enough. But there's a very real thing about being affordability, right? To be able to actually access spaces and networks and so on and so forth. So some people, by default, because they don't know they can... I feel like some people will be left out. I feel like some, some talent, some capability, some connections will not happen just because there's not this opportunity for people to get together, right? There's two, mm-hmm. two sides of the same coin. I agree yeah, with you, yeah. but at the same time, I'm like, is that the entire story, right? Like, so, so to your point, I think access to people, networks, and opportunities there at no cost. Um, we still have a sizable number of events uh, or activities going on which you can participate in without, at no cost to you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, where I work uh, at Trigger, and one of the previous folks was running, um, uh, he was a moderator or a mentor at um, what they were calling ALC, Mandela Learning Community, and you could go and participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All you need to do is register interest, and provided you have enough uh, context and knowledge, you could actually go and make something useful out of it, and go and meet like-minded people. Um, if I think of the events, I, I, don't, I don't recall Meta ever charging for an event, for example. All you need to do is register early enough because of capacity constraints. So if these are, and the good thing, the good thing about that approach is they're not looking at it's not purely tech conversations. They look at things like health, 
uh, digital marketing. They look at various broad sectors, both subject matter. Yeah. So, so that's good in the sense that even if you're thinking of a tech solution or tech-minded solution, it has to apply in a certain field. So mm -hmm. talking to the experts in those fields will give you extra context and extra knowledge. And that's something that was not previously available. Mm -hmm. Before, you just used to look at tech as its own isolated thing. Right. But one thing I've come to know with time is we can't build tech for the sake of building tech. Right. It has to solve a real need. Mm -hmm. It has to align to uh, an industry that's... Uh, it has to solve real-world problems. It yes, it has to solve real-world problems and it has to align to an industry that really needs technology to scale or be more efficient. Right. So uh, when I think of our case right now, like a trigger, tech was brought to scale a logistics operation, but the real need there was around operations, logistics, and value chain efficiency. So the fact that people are thinking, okay, let's not just bring people who know tech, but people who know specific business operations, uh, business operations who are subject matter experts in specific Precisely. fields, right. those opportunities. And I think that's where we really needed to go and say, okay, let's bring people who know these things. Mm. So to the extent that those opportunities are still there, I think people can still make use out of it. Mm. Now, I guess to your point, it's a question of if someone has an idea, or wants to try out something, why do you give them access to space or mentorship opportunities for three, six, nine months, however, however long it is that they need to kind of validate or kind of prove out their, their idea. Mm. So I guess that's where the question needs to be asked. Mm. But in my view, I think there's still a lot of access to information, opportunity. And then when I think of things like the cost of data, which has come tremendously mm. down, even yeah. from 2010, 2011 rates, right, right a lot of this information can be found online. Now granted, it's not a person-to-person -person interaction, so that's different, but I think access to information is there. It's so there, yeah. I think I think the transition that needs to happen in my view is think through how do we encourage people to think through valid ideas? Mm -hmm. How do they think of it not as a short-term thing where I want to go and do it and get prize money? Because that was also the other challenge we've mm -hmm. had over the last few years. Mm -hmm. That people who, who are specializing in attending pitch pitch pitch, pitch entrepreneurs uh, pitch, we used to call them pitchpreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> so they always think about what's the next event I can go and pitch to and and make money that sustains the company. Wow. So to, to a large extent, the one of the side effects of that approach is that there was a lot of easy money. Mm. People are not thinking through sustainable long-term ideas, mm. and that's what we need to really switch to. Mm. How do we get entrepreneurs who are thinking about the opportunity? Mm. How do they think through making um, something sustainable and look at it long term. Right. So it's not the first, because entrepreneurship and running or starting any business will always have its ups and downs inevitably. Mm. But how do we get people to the point where they're thinking of this long term mm. and they're going to give it a good shot mm. um, up to the point where it's not feasible anymore. Right. So, so I think that's where the conversation has and, to be. And let's talk a little bit about that because that's yeah. a very important thing. Right? Yeah. It seems that the ecosystem has been maturing yeah. and it has morphed in terms of its um, enablers yes. and the types of uh, people taking runs at different ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And you've been privy to that this whole time. Yeah. And I guess where we are right now is, and I'm kind of seeing this a little bit more, mm -hmm. is entrepreneurs who are really thinking through the business value of the solution they're bringing to market. At the same time, there are also people who are just putting apps out there mm. into the App Store or into Google Play mm. and hoping something begins to happen. Mm. Um, could you comment a little bit on, in terms of, expand on that a little bit in terms of how you seeing an evolution? Are you, do you think um, we, you know, we still have more of one or less of the other in terms of the, the quality of entrepreneur that, that, that we have in our market today? I think it's definitely, definitely improved. Uh, before you'd have someone building an app for the sake of building one. Um, and it ties back to the issue around someone knowing, if I build this app, I have a chance of pitching uh, and winning ones at a, at a competition. Now, there have been very many um, success stories, granted, but I think the change that's happened between then and now is um, even people willing to support, whether in kind or monetary or through other means, are asking, okay, what's the end goal here? What, what, what are you solving? Mm. For the everyday Kenyan, because mm. um, if 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 you can't if you can't really clearly articulate that, if no one sees the value, 
If you can't say this is a sector targeting, these are the challenges businesses or people in that sector are facing, mm. and this is how I plan to solve it, mm. um, then people are like, okay, hold up, you need to kind of go think through A, B, C, D, and then maybe we can, we can talk. So people are, a bit, are being a bit more discerning. Mm -hmm. They're kind of questioning the ideas a bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, people need more validation, more proof points before committing uh, resources or time into, into an initiative, which, which I think is good. So I get to the point where people are now starting to say, okay, you know what, let's, let's not support an idea for the sake of supporting it. Does it have potential Merit. to stand on its own legs yeah. at mm. some point? Mm. Which, which I think is good. Um, I think the other, the other thing tied to that is Previously, you would have people, it's, it's a classic case of a solution looking for a problem. Mm -hmm. So it's a, let me build this app, then market it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah. Like, I still get people reaching out and saying, hey, I've built this thing, yeah. even, even yesterday, even yeah. the day before yesterday. Mm. Hey, I've built this app, mm. and, and, and I, I, I kind of, I'm looking to raise funding to do marketing. It's like, mm. that's kind of, you know. I mean, so, so, that's, so that's the thing. Actually, the best, the best businesses, have come tech second. It's I want to solve the real need first. Right. And so many people in the local and uh, continental ecosystem have alluded to this fact. I was actually with a friend on Monday and I was reading up on this yesterday. Uh, Gojek, which mm -hmm. is one of the most popular mm -hmm. um, or biggest startups in out Indonesia, of Indonesia. Yeah. Um, they started, the, the tech never came first. They, they actually were running a call center, and when you requested for something, they would kind of try to figure out, okay, which driver is likely to be in that area, right. and then call in and have them do the delivery. So what they focused on was customer service, and then tech came to really scale the model they had built. So they kind of figured out this is what needs to scale. Right. Um, so from call center to app and... That was same, the transition. Same thing. Even yeah. with uh, even with Twiga, it was how do I efficiently move bananas from farmers to vendor. Once you had that, it's okay. How do I now scale that um, and drive efficiency into the process, right? Yeah, Uber. Everyone in Uber knows the app right now. But if you go back to the history, there's a time they're doing this off SMS. Mm -hmm. So you message, they'd have a dispatcher, just the way taxi companies used to run. Mm -hmm. And then with time, they kind of figured out, okay, this is how I want it to work. Let's scale it, and then of course. Um, everyone knows your story after that. So, I think I think what needs to happen in the local ecosystem is people need to kind of think through what what what's the pain point, yeah. and to the extent you can do it without technology, I think it helps you, you validate yeah. the idea right. and you have much better a much better chance of success yeah. if you're looking at first solving the real need and then using technology to scale and make it more efficient. Yeah. Now, by definition, some solutions have to be tech first, right. but to the extent that you can solve, especially B2C startups, mm. to the extent you can solve a customer need mm. and have it um, working without technology, so whether it's Excel or um, Google Sheets or whatever it is. Whatever it is, whether it's WhatsApp, WhatsApp interactions, exactly. so taking orders. If, if you solve the real pain point, then technology will come in to scale the rest. That process, but if yeah. you do it tech first, then you try to solve the customer service issue. Mm. Then I mean you may not that you wouldn't succeed, but I think someone trying to invest or make a decision around supporting you would want to look at the former first rather than the latter. Right. So I think that would be my advice and encourage to entrepreneurs, whatever you're looking to solve, solve the real pain point. In many cases, technology is not the real the real pain point. It's not an app. It's a tool it's, that scales the business model, right? It's a tool. It's, it's, it's a service. Mm -hmm. in, in, many, in many cases, it's not the product. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. once you have that working, then the rest falls into place. So, so that will be my advice and feedback to those looking to get into this space. And let's let's kind of talk a little bit about how you evolved maybe to this position. Did mm -hmm. you have this? Did you have this thinking from before, or did you somehow also um, learn that you have to have a real underlying business problem and understand it very well before mm -hmm. you even and actually execute before you apply technology? Was this an evolution for you as well? Yeah. So. Interesting enough, although I've been in tech the longest, I've, I've always kind of had the thought, tech, tech is just a thing that does the I and process the T. Mm. I need to solve a real, 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 real pain point. Mm. Um, so if it's a farmer, for example, a farmer would ask, can I, can I make more income with you as a person I sell to rather than someone else? Now, of course, a lot of decisions have to go into that 
that fact. Yeah, I need to be more efficient. I need to maybe build my own logistics network. By the end of the day, the farmer is the question to the farmer is, do I have more in my pocket? Do I have more in my pocket? Yeah. Don't so, show me. Don't, don't show me your app. Yeah. <laughs> to the extent that the app can help me get more in my pocket, great. But if it's not, then um, I don't care. Yeah. Because because you know that industry has always been cash based, mm. so it's an understanding one of the pain points of a farmer. Yeah. So to the extent that you can solve that, and now whether it's logistics, operations, technology to solve that, that's really the fundamental core question. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing for vendors. How do I make your life easier? Mm. Yeah. If I tell you, you don't need to go to the market, for example, if I tell you I'll give you quality produce, solving the pain point. The, the tech can come and all that's great, but that's a clue to the fact that these are my real issues today right. and this is what I need solved. Mm -hmm. So you need to first think through, okay, what am I going to do? And to solve that problem. The, yeah. the technology is just a cream on the cake. Right. Uh, right. And that applies to very many industries, right. whether it's health, whether it's education. A parent may ask, how do I, how do I prepare my child better for? For exams, mm. for example, mm. yeah. So an app could help. Uh, targeted questions could help. That's all great. But at the end of the day, I think the parent wants to feel the sense that my child is getting much better access to information. Mm. I'm setting them up for life. Mm. Yeah, mm. not I'm setting them up to do an exam. Well. Mm. So seeing mm. through what's the real pain point what's of the, the parent. Pain? What's the underlying question yeah. behind the ask? What's the underlying question yeah. behind yeah. behind the ask? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, and I think a lot of industries. Um, are facing that same question, whether it's insurance, mm. uh, whether it's the medical industry, mm. whether it's the transport space. A lot of these people are asking, okay, how do I, how do I get more people into my bus, for mm. example? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So how do I, how do I diagnose issues much much faster? Mm. Um, technology will solve many things, but you need to understand. Understand the underlying, understand the underlying base dynamics mm. and, and think through a solution there. And, and let me and ask you this, in terms of our the market, terms, yeah. in, sorry to in terms mm. of our market, mm. that level of awareness that you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The way of thinking, separating tech mm -hmm. from the business problem you're trying to solve and mm -hmm. thinking about that and then applying technology effectively. Mm. Where are we at? How would you rank our ability in our ecosystem, right, mm -hmm. and broadly speaking, maybe even our business landscape, to, mm -hmm. to think in that way, that order of, of, of thinking. Where are we at in a, on a scale of 1 to 10? Let's say Silicon Valley is at a 10, right, or maybe a 9.5. Mm -hmm. Where would we rank in that ability to disambiguate these things and think about them effectively? I'd probably say we are between 5 and 6. Um, I say 5 because we've people are realizing more and more that it's not it's not just about having a shiny app on the, on the Play Store, for example. Um, the, and the good thing is the ecosystem is now starting to understand that even people are going to help me on, want to understand more about what am I doing beyond the tech solution I have. Mm -hmm. uh, and even investors uh, or those who are putting money into companies mm -hmm. are starting to ask, okay, what's the fundamental thing you're you're, you're solving mm -hmm. yeah and you see the thing is when I or when someone is thinking through um, a decision whether to help someone or even fund a company a lot of the time they're betting on the team mm -hmm. now will they bet on you on the basis you can make a good app or they bet on you will they bet on you on the basis you're solving a fundamental you can build a business uh, build a business mm -hmm. and solve a day-to-day -day need mm -hmm. So I think in many ways people are starting to understand, I need to go with a convincing story. And this story will need me to kind of um, roll my sleeves up, um, go figure out the issue, mm. fix the underlying issue and then say, okay, I'm, this is what I found, this is what I'm doing. I'd like to expand and I'll need technology to, to expand the business. Yeah. So yeah. to a large extent, that's where the, the market or the sentiment is shifting to, generally speaking. I don't right. think we're there yet. Right. Uh, may take a year or two or three, mm. but by and large, people are starting to understand. Hey, it's not just about the tech, but what else are you trying to solve beyond mm. that? So, so we're, I would say we're halfway there. Halfway um, mm. So, I think I, but I'm optimistic. Mm. I think uh, meeting entrepreneurs, mentoring them, speaking to them, mm. a lot of them are are thinking through the day-to-day -day problem. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, I've met people who. Who are who are doing what 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 exactly we are talking about? Mm. They've identified a need. They're mm. managing it without tech. Mm. People are seeing value in it, mm. and then now they're saying, "Okay, I'm ready to now scale build this something and uh, build something yeah. and build product." So, mm. 
I think to a large extent, um, people are kind of shifting their mindset, both investors and entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, but I'm optimistic of what will be in the next three, three or so Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah you, there's, there's cause to be very optimistic because mm-hmm. you and I have talked about this before. There's a lot yeah. of white space mm-hmm. and opportunity for uh, to solve problems in, mm-hmm. in, in major markets, right? Exactly. It's just a question of people getting to the point where they're going to attack it, the order of operations in, in the right way. Yeah. And this comes back to this very interesting thing you've mentioned, investors and funding. Mm. And, you know, we always hear about the fact that, you know, local founders are not getting funded and this, this whole conversation that keeps going back and forth in the mm. ecosystem. Mm. Um, and maybe kind of talk a little bit about that. Obviously, you guys have received a lot of funding because you've been able to demonstrate that you have the fundamentals in place so that mm. somebody can bet on mm. that. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about or maybe think about an entrepreneur, what advice would you give them? Because we've already touched on this a little bit, mm-hmm. but what, how, how should you help them think about what it takes to get funded? So, I think to get funded, you need, as you, as you alluded to, you need to have your fundamentals right. That's, that's always the first thing. But uh, you also need to think of two things at the same time. What are your medium-term goals and what are your short-term goals? So the, the reason short-term goals is important is whenever you're receiving money from investors uh, or anyone funding your company, um, and, and this even actually applies to non-equity funding. So if you received a grant or some kind of alternative funding, you'd always have to think in terms of proof points and milestones. So what will unlock uh, the next round of funding? So in, in, a, in a sense, you need to think short-term in the sense of these are my three, six, nine-month goals. Typically, you normally get funding to last you two years. Mm-hmm. So at nine, between nine months and one year, you kind of need to be hitting your proof points mm-hmm. to start the next discussion uh, of the next fundraising. Because if you're going to build a long-term sustainable business, you probably need three, four, five rounds of fundraising mm-hmm. to get to a point where um, your, your economics or uni- your unit economics makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you always have the long-term goal. You may say, look, I want to be in 10 countries, mm-hmm. which is great and not a bad thing to think through, but mm-hmm. what are the things I need to solve today? The steps. Yeah, what are the steps? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, not all steps um, are, are revenue or, or income-driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there are many ways of making money. You can increase your revenue, you can reduce your costs, you can fix margins. There are many ways of looking at this. But I think at the end of the day, it's agreeing with the stakeholders, and especially those who funded you, these are the next steps to unlocking the next round of funding. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those clear, and you know that's, and in many ways, that also has to be broken down into month-to-month goals. Mm-hmm. So this is what I want to do. These are the risks to the business. Um, and you see in, in somewhere like Kenya, um, a good example was um, 2017. Um, we had elections, and then we had another set of elections not, not too long after. Mm. Now, these are not things you generally can people's mm. control. Mm. So you also have to think, what are the external factors that mm. could affect my ability to execute? Mm. What are the possible things that could disrupt my plan? Because mm. you'll always have the perfect plan. This is like the golden rule of entrepreneurship. Mm. You'll always have the perfect plan. But you'll always have the most unforeseen things mm-hmm. affect you as a business. You've got to be yeah. flexible and ready flexible. to bob and weave with the reality, right? And the more complex your business is in terms of solving fundamental issues, the more variability there is right. to your plan and right. your ability to execute. Right. And it can be the most random things, so like flooding or drought. Okay, at least in our case, those are mm-hmm. some of the things we, we have to think through. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many other businesses, it could be regulation um, or it could be taxation. There are all these things that one has to think about. Mm. So make sure you've understood your risk factors, how likely they are to affect your perfect plan, mm-hmm. and how you need to adjust for that. Because you also want to set realistic expectations. For your, yeah. yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about maybe a more early stage uh, mm. person, right? Mm. They're, they're, you know, the way I think about funding specifically, mm. it's, it, you know, it's self-funding, friends, family, mm. and, and fools, as mm. they call it. Mm. And that money, the way I think about it, is I should allow you to get the product market fit or to, to understand the business fundamentals and have something that is working mm. before you can actually go to get external money because that has a different has a different relationship with you. Exactly. And so uh, I guess proof points, right? Like talk a little bit about 
um, what are some of the proof points, like specifically if you can, mm -hmm. that people should be looking to, to have before they talk to an external investor who's not friends, family, fools in that category, mm -hmm. external money? Yeah, so, so product market fit is, is an interesting thing. And I think in our context, it essentially means I have something that someone is willing to pay for and can sustain itself. Um, so some sort of model that has recurring revenue. Um, the one, one challenge is if, if you deal with a company that deals in terms of one-off one -off revenues from customers, you never know whether it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. But a recurring revenue business, it's always easy for you to kind of validate because if, as long as customers like your product, they'll keep coming back. Mm -hmm. So when I think of product market fit in our local context, is to get to a point where you have a solution or a business uh, that customers or people are willing to pay for, and also equally important, have enough funding or runway to last me for six months because mm -hmm. it's not a matter of getting to product market fit and getting the next uh, fundraising. That's not how it works. Mm. You need to be at a point where you have paying customers and you can sell this story to investors mm. and that by the time they do their due diligence and you have the conversations and agree on investment, investment terms, you're not scrambling or, or kind of just hanging by a thread, mm. so to speak. Mm. Mm. So I think, I think that's also the thing that probably needs to change a bit. Mm. People need to think, okay, this is what I'm going to do. If I'm, and if you're lucky enough to raise from, um, from soft money sources, mm. as you call it, mm. that has to be able to sustain you until the next fundraise. Now, when you work backwards, it's saying I need to get to a point where investors are actually going to be interested, mm. I'll have enough time to have those conversations and close around mm. and then work backwards and say, okay, these are these are kind of milestones I, I need to hit. Mm. I think a lot of times what I've seen is people get just enough funding to get their first customer mm. and then they want to rely on that to uh, survive. revenue to survive. So I think that's one thing that, and I think it's also uh, more education on the part of soft money mm. where you need to explain to them a long-term game there's a 70% chance this will fail mm. this is what I want to do mm. and I need to be able to sustain myself until the next round of funding, funding comes so, so you should you should be thinking through you should have a timeline associated with your with your theory of what you're trying to do exactly that's that that extends past product market fit with six months yes product market fit plus six months at least, mm -hmm. at minimum. It could be more, right. which is great, mm -hmm. but without that, what you'll find is you have product market with your paying customers, it can't sustain you, so you start getting distracted. Mm -hmm. You start looking for other ways to side sustain hustles. yourself, mm -hmm. side hustles. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're committed to the idea, the business has to be able to run for, for six months after you get your first paying customer. Mm -hmm. And then remember, you also need to show traction or growth mm. during that fundraising period. So mm. it's not saying, okay, I have a first customer, great. Mm. It's first customer, maybe five, 10, 20, mm. 50. Mm. How do I get more and more customers? Mm. And how do I make this thing sustainable? And that question, that's a very important thing, how, yeah. the yeah. how part. Yes. If you're getting customers in very different ways, mm. it's not predictable. It's almost not investable because, mm -hmm. you know, you have to have a very predictable way that you are actually saying this is my theory of growth mm. so that you have a coherent business model yeah right so the unit economics work so that all those things uh, work right yeah i think to a large extent it will have to be i mean to be honest there'll be some level of market there'll be some sort of experimentation you have to do because mm. in many ways it's a journey mm -hmm. you're learning as you go along mm -hmm. you may think a certain type of customer would be the best mm -hmm to mm, get. Mm, mm. So, so for example, there's some type of customers who are easy to get but hard to sustain. Mm. There's some who need a, a bit more effort to get mm. but they're easier to sustain. Mm. So it's about you going through that. Understanding your market dynamics. Yeah. Um, mm. So there needs to be some kind of segmentation for sure. Mm. Don't try to chase every customer. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding which customer gets me to this proof point or which type of user will enable me unlock. You're seeing something very important here yeah. because it's not not every customer is a good customer for you at, at a certain stage. At a certain stage. Yeah. That's a very it takes discipline to actually be able to number one, accept that mm. and execute it, right? And say I'm going to say no mm. to this particular opportunity that's presenting itself because it could be potentially problematic. 
And you see, that's, that's one thing investors look for. Do you have the right discipline? Do you have the right focus? Do you have the right thought process around? I'll take this opportunity. I'll leave this opportunity on the table. Uh, because you know, you also don't want to stretch yourself thin. You may, I mean, a corporate may come and really like your idea, but a corporate is a very different type of customer from an SME. Right. A corporate may want audit. They have high expectations. High expectations. They have things like SLAs. Mm. And maybe as a young company, you can't, you can't, you can't, uh, deliver, on you can't deliver on those. So it's also about thinking what's my opportunity here? What should I leave? What should I pursue? Mm -hmm. That's very, very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing here is also trying to understand and saying, okay, if I'm going for this type of customer, what does it take to serve them well? How mm -hmm. do I market myself to them? Mm -hmm. the, way, the, way you, the way you explain or show the opportunity to a certain market segment is not it's the different. same way to a different or bigger type of market segment. Right. So, I mean, generally speaking, it's, 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 it's very rare for a company to want to target a big customer, unless that's the only market you have. <laughs> but and then you're a consultant. You're yeah, right. then, then in many <laughs> ways, you're, it's, it's, it's pseudo consulting. Right. Uh, but if you want to really have impact, because an investor needs to see growth. Mm -hmm. there, are only, there are only so many big companies. Right. There's a larger pool of uh, medium sized companies, and, and there's a much larger pool of smaller SMEs. Yeah. And there's a much, much larger pool of informal sector informal sector mm. businesses mm -hmm. so when someone is having the opportunity to understanding okay what what's going on what's your good here, market focus yeah it's it's how 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 will you execute against that that opportunity right why are you really restricting yourself so right. so those are some of the things uh, an investor would look at mm -hmm. um from a from a discipline perspective you're very very right um and it's not just the market segment mm. it's how you think around costs how mm. you think around recruiting how you think around uh, sustainability, mm. how you think around things like um, the things that don't make you money but are very important to set you up for the future. The things so, that keep, keep your business working. Exactly. Because <laughs> you see, an investor will come and you may have a great idea of making money, but for example, if your books mm. are not in order, mm. you need to spend a lot of time working with auditors, mm. for example. Okay. Then maybe there's an element of discipline here mm. that should have been there before. That's lacking. Yeah. That's lacking. Mm. So it's also to think around how do I position myself, mm. not just uh, from a customer perspective, mm. but also from a potential investor perspective. Yes. So if they come and look at what I have in terms of the total body of work, in terms of what I'm offering, how I've organized myself, how I'm recruiting, how I'm thinking of sustainability. They feel confidence because remember they're investing in the idea they're investing in the person in as much as they're investing in the, the idea mm -hmm. a lot of time it's a team mm -hmm. that makes a difference whether mm -hmm. you, so whether you succeed or not so mm -hmm. how i think about what kind of roles you need uh, how i think about what are the strength points of the co-founders what parts do they need to bring in outside uh, help and expertise mm -hmm. so if you have real good clarity on that then it, it just speaks towards a discipline factor. Yeah, right. You're very self-aware, you know what you can do, what you can't do. Mm. So I think these are things that I think we've started thinking through as an ecosystem. Mm. And with time, we will, we will get there. Mm. And then the other thing is, okay, it's also to understand how long do I want to be in this. Maybe your passion is seeing an idea, understanding it, seeding it, getting its initial phases going, mm. and then handing this over to someone. If that's you, great. Mm. You don't have to be there for 20 years. Mm. Before people really cling to the idea mm. and not even want to have anyone help them. As a co-founder. Yeah, as a co-founder, investor. investor. We've been through this. Equity. So <laughs> I think more and more people are realizing mm. it's better to have a team in place uh, and maximize the opportunity mm. rather than think uh, let me just so it's, so it's the idea of a small pie versus a bakery right i mean you don't you don't you don't the you don't you don't have a small cake mm. you want a slice of a big cake right it's always more sustainable right, right. Yeah. and that's a mindset thing that's a cultural background thing right it's like, a mindset thing and to and in many ways i i think it's something that comes with time and something that you learn mm -hmm. unless someone tells you this it's not something you'll be wired it's to. not intuitive yeah right? it's not intuitive it's mm. not wired into people so mm. i think we're getting to the point where people are understanding i'd like to be part of a bigger story mm. than the only part of a small story mm. so so taking all these things together that plus how people are thinking about solving issues mm. i think in the next three or so years mm. we will be somewhere much 
We've been more, we've been much more solid for so Kane as an ecosystem. As a, as an ecosystem. Listen, man, yeah. Kane, you and I can go for days <laughs> talking about this type of stuff because yeah. this, this is the life we live and what yeah. we love. Yeah. But uh, I think what's, what we're gonna have to do is again split mm. this conversation into part one and part two, like we did. With, I was right. Eric's theme of Mook was here yeah, yeah. last last uh, last time, and okay. we got into it, and he yeah. talked about his story. Yeah. And we had to do a part one and part two. Okay. To me, this is so exciting yeah. because there's so much to talk about. There's mm. so much to share. Yeah. We are at a very uh, unique place, and, and we're at an inflection point. Yeah. So we really cannot shortchange the conversations, right? Definitely. We have to put the right content out there. Mm. You know, us at Impact Africa Network complete agreement to everything that you're saying. Mm. Um, you know, for us, the vision is, you know, changing the African narrative, mm. building great African companies and mm. an ecosystem of high performance, high integrity and high collaboration. Mm. You know, the, the vision really is in 10 to 15 years, be able yeah. to stand back and look at Silicon Savannah, the skyline and pick out great African companies that we were part of actually building mm. and, and supporting. Um, mm. So, so yeah, as a startup studio, what we're doing, we're building our own projects internally. Uh, we're focusing on, on providing an environment for young folks who are coming through, technical folks, and also, you know, you talked about auditors and so on and so forth. Mm. On our platform, we have a financial person, we're going to have a legal person, we're going to have digital marketing people. Mm. And the idea there is to streamline the process, drive discipline into the very, very early stages of project formation. Mm. And yeah, it's just an exciting time. I mean, I mean, uh, I I feel I feel that I mean the, the idea and the, the approach definitely is what we need as an ecosystem. Um, it's also the support system around entrepreneurs. Right. So events are great, meeting the really talking is great. But right. what are some of the things they've never come across that mm -hmm. they need to think through? Mm -hmm. So, in as much as they have a good idea, we also know a sustainable company needs good advice and. Financials, bookkeeping, legal, uh, potentially IP, things like structuring the company and all that stuff. So recruiting, talent, organizational, exactly, right? Um, culture, so milestones. Um, what we just talked about. I'm right. thinking through what's your ideal market. How right. you want to attack and approach that right. market. Right. So I, I definitely, I'm fully supportive mm -hmm. of the idea. Yeah. Happy to help where I can. Yeah. And yeah, we definitely need a, a part two. <laughs> we definitely need a part two, man. Thank you so much, Kane, for coming through. No worries. And um, yeah, that is the end of the podcast for today. Uh, tune in next time for, for another episode. But um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this and uh, we'll see you next time.